I want to cite a passage of Scripture found in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. There the apostle said, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Correctly read, so reads the passage which will introduce our thoughts this morning. The New Testament assigns great importance to the death of Christ. The fact of his death is mentioned over 175 times in the scriptures. And his death is definitely connected with our salvation. The Apostle Paul set forth the importance of the death of Christ when he wrote to the Corinthians. And he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, wherein you stand, by which also you're saved, if you, uh, if, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Hebrews 2 and 9 states, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Again, in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter said, For Christ also hath suffered once uh, for our sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So over and over we read of the importance of the death of Christ. Many other passages could be given to show the close relationship between the death of Christ and our salvation. And I think so many people today are not aware of the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, His death for our sins. In other words, a, uh, a death in our, sub, in our place, a substitutionary death. The fact that He shed His blood to save our souls has become distasteful to many people and repugnant to many people today. In fact, many leave it out of their sermons altogether, any reference to his death and his blood. And uh, sometimes in the hymns, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ is not mentioned at all. However, the scriptures declare in Hebrews 9 22 that without shedding of blood is no remission. So this morning we're asking the question, was the death of Christ in vain? Could man have been saved without the death of Christ? Well, the fact that the death of Christ was necessary is taught many times in the Scriptures. In fact, it's the only way that man could receive remission of sins and be reconciled to God. And atheists and infidels have ridiculed the importance of the death of Christ. 
But any doctrine that minimizes the death of Christ or makes it non-essential is necessarily a false doctrine. It's a false doctrine. And many people who regard themselves as intelligent imply, maybe by their words or their actions, that the death of Christ was needless. So this morning we're considering the question, did Christ die in vain? Well, there's certain uh, ifs connected with that. First of all, Christ did die in vain if he was not raised from the dead. Paul stated here in 1 Corinthians 15 and 14, If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Vain means empty, useless, worthless. Again, he said in verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. So we see the importance of the death of Christ. In fact, Paul is showing the futility of our efforts to be saved, to preach the gospel, if the resurrection of Christ is not a fact. All of God's efforts toward us, and in fact all of our efforts toward God, are in vain if Christ were not raised from the dead. But we're thankful for another statement of the apostle in the same chapter. He said in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So his death was not in vain because his resurrection is certainly a fact. And it has the power to accomplish all that God intended because he came forth triumphant from the grave. That the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb and that on the third day the tomb was empty is a fact that is not denied by anyone so far as I know. The enemies of Christ have felt compelled to explain the empty tomb. What happened to the body of Jesus? But no rational explanation has ever been found apart from the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That Christ was raised was the explanation that was offered by the first century disciples. And this is something else that the enemies of Christ have felt a need of explaining the faith of those early disciples. Why were they willing to risk their lives by spreading the gospel, the fact that Christ rose from the dead? Well, there's no conceivable explanation except that which is given in the New Testament. That Jesus was raised from the dead and that the disciples and others saw him after his resurrection. The apostles and others saw him and heard him after his resurrection and even ate with him. And some 500 brethren testified that they saw him and most of them were alive later when Paul wrote the book of Corinthians some 30 years later. To say that they were deceived or deceivers does not satisfy the mind of the person who demands a rational explanation. So the empty tomb, the faith of those early disciples, is a witness to the resurrection that can't be silenced. They raise their clarion voices and testify to the fact that on the third day the body of Jesus was raised from the dead.
But then there's another if. Christ died in vain if the law saves. In other words, if men were able to be saved by the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul made a masterful argument showing that we're not under the law of Moses in Galatians 2 and 21. <coughs> Excuse me. dead in vain. So Paul shows that righteousness or forgiveness of sins did not come by the law, for if it had, there would have been no need for Christ to die, don't you see? One of the things that Paul and the other apostles had to deal with continually were the Judaizing teachers who tried to bring people back under the law, binding the law of Moses upon the New Testament church. Paul fought that battle over and over, and everywhere he went, they dogged his tracks and tried to silence him. Paul accused those who were listening to these teachers of turning aside to a different gospel, a perverted gospel in Galatians 1. He stated that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That's in Galatians 2 and 16. He denied that they received the Spirit by the law. Galatians 3.13 and he uh, insisted that Christ has redeemed us from the law. Uh, he stated that the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and that that seed was Christ. Galatians 3.16 and 19. He argued that since faith has come we're no longer under the law or a tutor but we're under the school of Christ. In the famous allegory of the two women that you read there in the fourth chapter of Galatians, Paul affirmed that the children of the law are not heirs with the children of uh, God. God's promises, that is. And he pleads with the Galatians not to be entangled again in that yoke of bondage. And he says that those who would be justified by the law are fallen from grace. He calls the Galatians foolish for giving heed to those teachers who were trying to bring them again into that yoke of bondage, which of course is the old law. But in the original passage that I cited, it settles the question whether or not the law is still in force. Because it says, for if righteousness, anytime you see that word righteousness, you can translate that justification or salvation from sins. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain, Galatians 2.21. Now the reason this is pertinent today is because sometimes we hear people say that they believe the Old Testament is still binding. And you know, I've heard people say, well, I believe as long as you keep the Ten Commandments, you're going to be all right. You'll be saved. They must not realize that they're making a statement that if it is true, makes the death of Christ a useless, meaningless event. Because you see, if we could be saved by the law, why did, we, why did Christ have to come? Why did he have to die? So I think we can see that that is a doctrine that is false. Because any doctrine that makes the death of Christ 
a meaningless, empty, useless thing is a false doctrine. But then look at here. Christ died in vain if morality only saves. This is another idea currently held that eliminates the necessity of the death of Christ. They say that man can be saved if he just lives a good moral life. And I talk to people sometimes. They say, well, you know, I'm not, I'll be all right at the judgment. You won't have to worry about me. Well, listen, I'm a good husband and I'm a good father. I obey the laws of the land. I pay my taxes. I'm benevolent to the poor out here. Oh, you won't have to worry about me. I'll be all right at the judgment. But, you know, the truth is people could live a good moral life before the death of Christ. And if they could, and if salvation could be obtained simply by living a good moral life, why did Christ die? See, can't we see that to maintain that we can be saved by simply living a good moral life makes the death of Christ empty, useless, meaningless. Now, don't get me wrong. Living a good moral life is essential to the Christian life. But alone, it is not sufficient. One of the best men that we read about in the Bible is Cornelius in the 10th chapter of Acts. I don't know too many men that the Bible calls devout. The Bible says he was a devout man, one that prayed always, one that gave alms, and he even saw an angel. I've had people tell me they see angels, you know. Well, this man really did. But you know, this angel didn't tell him, your sins are forgiven, speak peace to his soul. Instead, he said, you send up yonder to Joppa and you get Simon Peter come down here and he'll tell you words whereby you and your house can be saved. And then that angel told him to do that and he sent for Peter and Peter told him what to do to be saved. Peter said, who can forbid water that they should not be baptized who have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. Of course, we're not saved by human works that occasion boasting, and we know that God's grace intervenes, but we don't earn salvation. However, those who think they can be saved by their own moral goodness may not intend to minimize the importance of the death of Christ, but they surely do. Let's remember that any doctrine that makes the death of Christ unnecessary is a false doctrine. But let's look again. He died in vain if we can be saved apart from his blood. Salvation by the blood of Christ is a great New Testament doctrine. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 says, Speaking of Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then there's that passage in 1 Peter 1 and 18 says, We're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then there's that passage in Hebrews 9 and 22 that says, Without the shedding of blood is no remission. And then Revelation 1 and 5 states, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now when we connect that passage in Revelation with another passage, it brings a great truth that has to do with the washing away of sins. 
You remember back yonder when Ananias came to Saul of Tarsus to tell him what to do to be saved? He said, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That teaches that sins are washed away when we're baptized. And when we combine that with Revelation 1 and 5, a great truth emerges because it shows that our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ when we're baptized. You see, it's not the water that washes away sin. It's the blood of Christ. And if we can be saved without the blood of Christ, of course Christ died in vain. You know, I learned a little something from my wife. I have to do my own laundry anymore since Sally left. But she'd always fill the tub up with water. And of course, water's good, but that's not going to get your clothes clean, is it? No, she used Tide. T-I-D-E. She put that Tide in the water, don't you see? And that's the cleansing agent. And it gets them really clean. Well, I hang my shirts out on the line and let that Oklahoma sunshine dry them out and they look brand new. Well, that's the way it is with baptism. You know, the blood was shed in his death. Paul says in Romans 6 and 4 that we're baptized into his death. There's where we contact the blood. And it cleanses us from sin. So we can see that he died in vain if we can be saved without the blood. But he died in vain if we can be saved outside the church. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, well, the church is not going to save you. In his address to the Ephesian elders, Paul made reference to the church of God. Or the Revised says, the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. That's Christ, isn't it? So he purchased the church of the Lord or the church of Christ or the church of God with his own blood. And uh, the Bible also states in verse 25 of uh, Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. According to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 and 2.16, we're told that Christ reconciles unto God men in one body by the cross. So the cross was where Christ reconciled men in one body by the cross. So we can see that the church is forever connected with the death of Christ. In other words, he died in order that the church might exist. He purchased the church with his own blood. To say that therefore that the church is not essential is to say that the death of Christ was not essential. He died in vain if we can be saved outside of the church. You know, there in, in uh, John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, he shows that Christ is like that vine. And he says that without me, you can do nothing. You can look at a big, beautiful grapevine and you can lop off one of the most productive branches and toss it over to one side and it'll never bear any fruit. It'll never be any good. Why is that? Why well, it's separated from the source of life, don't you see? And that's true of the church. You need the church because you're separated from the source 
of spiritual life without it. No, to say the church is not essential to salvation is to say that the death of Christ was not essential. And if we can be saved outside of the church, then, of course, his death was in vain. But any doctrine that belittles the importance of the death of Christ is a false doctrine. But I want to mention one last thing and then I'll be through this morning. His death is in vain so far as you're concerned if you're lost. You know, I read the story of a community back in Kentucky. Must have been a good while ago, a long time ago. But this community had been without a school for several years because the big old boys in that community would get a teacher to come to the school and they would uh, make some rules and then when the teacher tried to enforce penalty upon those boys they'd just beat him up and send him on his way whip him, whip the teacher and drive him out and so for several years there hadn't been a teacher but one day a little slight man came to the community and uh, asked to see the Board of Education. He wanted to apply to teach the school. And uh, I'm sure they had told him of the history there. And the old, one of the old men said to him, young man, young feller, uh, are you, you know what you're asking for? And he assured them that he did. He said, all the other schools have been filled up. The employment is gone there. And I'm determined to teach a school. I have my certificate and I want to teach. I said, well, all right. If you're willing to try, we'll meet uh, next Monday and start the school. So next Monday, the school met. And the young man stood before them and he said, now, I'm a new teacher. He says, I've never taught school before, so I don't know exactly how to go about this. So he said, you're going to have to help me. Now I want you to uh, make some rules for this school because in every organized society there have to be rules or else there's no organization. So he said, let's think up some rules that apply. And uh, somebody said, well, I say no stealing. He said, oh, that's a good rule. We'll write that down on the board. He wrote it down. Somebody else said, no lying. He said, that's a good rule too. So they put no lying. And pretty soon, they had 10 rules. He said, now that's enough. We get too many, you know, why it's unenforceable. So just 10 is enough. So they started with those 10 rules. He said, now there has to be a penalty for an infraction of those rules. So what's the penalty going to be? Somebody said, 40 lashes on the bare back. You talk about a penalty. He said, on the bare back? They said, yes, because you see, those before when there was a penalty applied, and they'd usually wait till the morning, the next morning to enforce the punishment. And those kids had come to school with several pair of pants on and a big coat on and maybe a pillow stuffed down in their trousers and so they could just whip till they gave out and they wouldn't feel anything you see so they just looked like little penguins coming to church 
And so they said, on the bare back. So everything went along swimmingly for about two weeks, and then a boy's lunch came up missing. It wasn't too hard to figure out who the guilty party was because there was a poor little old pitiful boy that came to that school just in a ragged old coat even though it was hot summertime, pitiful looking, clothes, you know, were pitiful. And just a little old slight boy and they said, Jeff, come up here because you've been identified as the thief and uh, you have to take your punishment. And uh, he said, well, I didn't want to steal, but I was so hungry. And he said, well, anyway, that's an infraction of the law and you have to be punished. He says, well, all right, but don't make me take my coat off. And they said, oh, yes, you have to take your coat off. And uh, he came forward. And when he took his coat off, the teacher almost fainted. He looked at that little back. He could see every part of his spine. <coughs> had uh, bruised spots on his body, pitiful, thin, emaciated. He thought of putting 40 stripes on that boy's back. Teacher was tempted just to break the big old switch and throw it over in the corner. But he knew that he had to enforce the punishment or else, you know, law was gone. There, there was, unless a law is enforced, it's not a law at all. And so just about the time he decided to give the punishment, big old Jim stood up in the back of the house, six foot four and big strapping specimen, and he said, Teacher, is there anything in that rule that says another person can't take his whipping? He said, Well, no. In every organized society that I know of, if a man wants to volunteer to go to the army for another person or if he wants to pay another person's taxes, He's allowed to. He said, I'll take his whipping. So Jim came forward, took off his shirt, bent over, and the teacher administered the 40 stripes to his back. Poor little old Jeff said, I'll never forget you as long as I live. I guess the reason that story means so much to me is because in the same way, but with so much more impact, and eternal consequences, Christ died for you. Folks, listen, there's my only hope of heaven. As Isaiah predicted back yonder in the long ago in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he said, He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon Him, and with His stripes I was healed. Think about it, friends. He gave Himself for you that He might redeem you from all iniquity. In the day of judgment, you're going to stand before Him who died for you. Will it be true in that day that His death for you was in vain? Listen, will you stand before Him having failed to do the things He asked you to do? Think of the shame that you'll experience when you realize that all that He did for you was in vain so far as you're concerned. No, let us so live that when we stand before Him on that great day, 
we'll not be put to shame. Let us so live that we'll believe in Him, we'll trust Him, we'll obey Him, and we'll serve Him faithfully every day that we live. Let us so live that when life is over, we'll have no serious regret. Let us so live that the death of Jesus, the very Son of God, will accomplish its objective in our lives. May it be true that eternity will reveal that Christ died for you and it was not in vain. I'm through this morning. I might be speaking to a man or woman, boy or girl, who's never obeyed the gospel, who would choose to do so today. Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart, the apostle says, come believing that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God. Repent of all sins, transgressions against him and against God. Confess the faith that you have in Christ as the Son of God. Be baptized and rise up to walk in the name of the sacred three and, and live for him all the days of your life. I might be speaking to someone who's erred from the faith, who stands at a guilty distance from God because of sin. Jesus wants to forgive that, but he asks that you repent of that, that you acknowledge those wrongs, and you seek his forgiveness in prayer. There's one of either class. Wouldn't you step forward while we stand and sing?